Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, we're going to go and get started. We'll pray and get on with our class. Here we go. Lord God, we thank you again that you have called us unto yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. Um, That we did not save ourselves. We are um, unable, Lord God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that, Lord God, we, every day, we are reminded of the gospel. That, Lord, you have, by your grace, saved sinners. People who deserve your justice, who deserve your wrath, who deserve hell. And you have shown favor and mercy because of the perfect saving work of Christ on our behalf. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection. And that you have placed us in Christ, in union with Christ, where we receive all the blessings of being adopted into your family, being redeemed, being forgiven of our sins, being given a new heart that loves you, who desires, Lord God, to hear your word and desires to be pleasing to you. And so we thank you for this story that we're studying again, the reminder again of, this, of the journey that we are all on, that you have called us out of the city of destruction, you've placed us on the king's highway, and we go from strength to strength. Even despite, Lord God, the setbacks, the struggles, the problems, even um, uh, um, the diversions, whatever it may be, Lord, you call us back, you keep us in the faith, and you remind us that we are yours. And so we bless you and thank you for um, this opportunity throughout this day to praise you, to worship you, to rejoice in the God of our salvation. So we just ask your blessing upon our time together and thank you again for how good and how great you are. And we ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, since I am being recorded and I was being told to to make sure I let the listeners know what in the heck we're doing... uh, so apparently I ramble. Um, anyway, these, this is uh, lesson number two. This we are uh, last week we started the introduction to the Pilgrim's Progress, and we only got about halfway with that. And so we are now on part two of the introduction. We will definitely finish that today, and then maybe uh, get into actually the very first chapter as well. Uh, so you know, all things are possible. Here we go. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what we talked about last week to see how much retention we have because I'm always interested to know. I think every teacher and preacher and anyone who's in education, you spend all that time talking, teaching, admonishing, and then they forget everything. And so I always hope, again, is that when we come back together again, uh, something's stuck in your brain. Okay, so I'm going to find out. I'm going to ask some questions here and see how much you remember. Um, I know, I hear that. (laughs) Totally forgot. Okay, so um, John Bunyan, he wrote his autobiography, a spiritual autobiography that we we make reference to quite a bit here. Uh, Who can, without looking at your notes, no cheaters, okay? I I should have started right off the bat. No looking at your notes. Uh, What was the name of that book? Chief of Sinners along that line. Grace of Balance to the Chief of All Sinners. Okay, and I have prizes. Okay, so so what you get is a Funyun. 
because it rhymes with onion. <laughs> it shows how desperate I really am. Okay, so um, uh, let's see what else we got here. We talked about um, the date for the first publishing for the Pilgrim's Progress, okay, the date. I see there's a, another wheeler in the house, by the way. A date, they're really good on dates. Um, dates, who does a, a date for the, it was real simple, sort of. I gave you a little bit. I mean, start you out, it begins with a one. <laughs> the, when the first, when the, the Pilgrim's Pro Progress was first published, the year. She said 1776. No, that was uh, John Newton, right? He did that preface, right? 1675? No. Good, nice try, though. Close. Getting closer. One. Six. <laughs> seven. Eight. What? One, six, seven, eight. Yes. <laughs> One more fun you know. All right. Maybe I'll add it to my breakfast. Right. Last question. Oh, I need to get to the hard one. You guys are, well, I can't do that. All right. Um, the one for who's been actually too bad for Oh, here we go. Making our own questions up now. All right. So, mm, okay. Um, the, Bunyan and the Pilgrim Progress writes in a particular uh, genre, a particular literary style. All right. Um, what's that literary style? Allegory. Okay. Wait, wait, raise your hands. What's this? <laughs> Everybody wants to fight. Allegory. Allegory is correct, sir. Thank you very much. All right. Next time, I'll bring more funnies next time. Okay. All right. Now that you're engaged a bit, all right, we're going to continue on. Um, real quickly, we, we looked at his life. We looked at some high points of, of Bunyan's life. And uh, you already know again that he becomes a, uh, a Christian. Well, Christian, it's a long process, right? Um, that he pretty much, most of his life, he's pretty much a heathen. He's pretty much, he's, uh, even though he's part of the Church of England, and he's not, he doesn't know Christ. And then he gets married, his first marriage, about 1620. And we don't even know the, the, the poor girl's name. Uh, but he has a couple children. And then later on, his wife dies. And from that, he becomes exposed more and more to Christianity, reading certain books. And then if he starts having these crisis moments where the Holy Spirit's working on his heart, right? And in particular, it's interesting is that um, it's kind of hard to follow along, but it's at certain points in that second marriage, he comes to know Christ. And we'll be talking about that today. Okay, we'll be talking about that crisis and talking again about um, how that, that the resolution of that crisis. Um, also, too, when we, uh, with, with Bunyan, after uh, the Lord saves him, uh, remember, he's imprisoned. And that's been the big thing, 12 years in prison. We, we talked about it the last time. Um, why is he in, in prison? He broke, he broke the law that said that you couldn't have church outside of the church. Uh, right. Yeah. But the government had established to have church. Right. You have a state church, Church of England, Anglican Church, right? Okay. And the idea, of course, is that every English person was required to go to, to, to be part of the, the Anglican Church, right? So you were not allowed, there's no religious freedom. You were pretty much, again, uh, if you did not go, you could be fined. And if you dared to have a church service outside the Church of England, you were a nonconformist, you were a dissenter. And the Puritans, they are basically not going to be part of the, well, I can qualify that. 
within the Puritan movement, you have dissenters and you have Puritans that were still part of the Church of England, but they're trying to reform it from within, right, until eventually they get kicked out. Uh, the point is, is that Bunyan is going to be arrested because he's preaching the gospel. Okay, he's a preacher, all right? So Bunyan is a preacher of the gospel, he's a writer, and he's also a pastor. Because eventually what will happen is that his pastor, John Gifford, will die, and then the church will ask John, to, they'll elect him to be the pastor of their church. And so it's always understand John Bunyan's writings, there's an, always an evangelistic aspect to it, and of course there's a pastoral aspect to it as well, which again, that's why uh, it applies to us and, and ministers to us in a, in a very strong way. Um, moving on, let's talk about on page 7 of your outline. And this is where we stopped at, and, and we've already talked about this before, but I'm going to bring it up again. The biblical testimony of the Christian life as that of pilgrimage, as that of pilgrimage. And again, so what's a pilgrimage? What's a pilgrim? Who goes on a pilgrimage? No, what's a pilgrimage? A journey. A journey, okay. And so are we on a journey? Are we on a pilgrimage? The answer is yes, right? And we talked about last time... Uh, you know, it's interesting is that when we look at the Christian life, a lot of times we don't see it as a journey. We see it again as we're going through this life. We kind of stumble from one event to the next. Uh, we don't see how it's connected. We don't see there's any uh, rhyme or reason or beginning and end. And yet the biblical view, of course, is that God's, uh, there's a starting point and there's an end point, right? And so it's linear, unlike the Greeks where basically time is cyclical. It's basically just kind of repeats itself and doesn't really uh, have any rhyme or reason. And so the world, we're, and we're on a spiritual pilgrimage. We're on this journey, um, obviously, to heaven or the celestial kingdom. Now, I've got to quote Jonathan Edwards here, because all basically every uh, theologian, every church, uh, everyone in the, within the church always uh, understood this imagery. Um, Jonathan Edwards would say, and this is from The Christian Pilgrim, uh, The True Christian's Life, A, a Journey Towards Heaven. He would say, we, would, we should travel in the way of obedience to all of God's commands, even the difficult as well as the easy denying all of our sinful inclinations and interests. The way to heaven is ascending. We must be content to travel uphill. When we talk about the hill difficulty, you know, this uphill climb, though it be hard and tiresome, and contrary to the natural bias of our flesh, we should follow Christ. The path he traveled was the right way to heaven. I love that. You know, Christ is the pathfinder. He's the one who, who uh, cuts that trail. We should take up our cross and follow him. In meekness and lowliness of heart, obedience and charity, diligence to do good, and patience under afflictions. The way to heaven is a heavenly life. I always like that line. An imitation of those who are in heaven in their holy enjoyments, loving, adoring, serving, and praising God and the Lamb. So that's Edwards, and again, a number of different uh, theologians would, would, would echo the exact same sentiment, the same idea. And then we looked at some, some Bible verses here. Um, last week, I mentioned in particular Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, um, in particular Abraham. You think about him sojourning. To God, God calls him. He leaves Ur, and God calls him to go to Canaan, right? And, and Hebrews 11 is, a, is all this imagery of, again, uh, God calls his people to travel to some place they don't know where they're going, and yet get God's going, they, they obey him and travel uh, in faith. Um, and now you have, in that particular quote, by faith, uh, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lives, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with um, Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city in which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
And I always love the imagery in, in chapter 11. Uh, for, you know, we all call it the hall of faith, right? And we all talk about, again, you know, beginning of faith is assurance of things hoped for, right? The, uh, the conviction of things not seen. And he talk, goes on by faith, by faith, and by faith. But I always love that idea of God calling his people uh, to a city, a city of the, who God, it, that God has built. And, uh, and this anticipation, this go, uh, for heaven, this anticipation of some place where God has prepared His people for His people, and uh, it's beautiful and again, it's tied into the imagery of the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, you have Psalm one nineteen fifty four. The statues of my songs are in the house of my pilgrimage, and then finally we have here in First Peter two eleven, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, which is take you see that mimicked in uh, Hebrews eleven, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. All right. And again, I, I kind of made the quote about the old uh, gospel song, you know, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. We're going to do a lot of songs today, all right? Not a lot of songs, but a few songs, okay? Um, but again, ties this whole idea, imagery, over and over and over again, um, we're on this spiritual journey and so on. All right, any questions up to this point? That's a little bit of review, kind of touched on this before, right? Got it all nailed down. Okay, we're going to move on then. What are some lessons we can pull from uh, the life of Bunyan? Now, the reason we're doing this is that the Pilgrim's Progress is partly biographical. It's partly biographical. That you will see pictures of Bunyan's life that he incorporates in the Pilgrim's Progress. And so you have to know something about, Pil about Bunyan's life in order to understand a bit like certain scenes and certain en encounters. And, and this is definitely from uh, Bunyan's own experience. And the very first one here, and there's a lot of them, I've just, I've just chosen a handful, is that he's, a right, he's an example of right suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. Um, and what he's going to do here, uh, there's a quote here uh, from, uh, from Bunyan that John Piper is going to, to talk about. I mentioned last week uh, a series of books that Piper wrote uh, called The Swans Are Not Silent. And this one in particular, this is called The Hidden Smile of God. And I love that line there because in the back of it talks about kind of what Piper means by that. But he says, great privilege, great pain, God's design, this is God's way to take the privilege of faith and strengthen it with trials so that we may worship and witness with a greater passion for God. So great book here. And he basically uses three examples of this and, and Bunyan's number one for this, okay? And the point, of course, is that Bunyan is going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And... You know, why am I saying this is because I've been thinking more and more and more about this lately. I mean, it's, I like to say it's not recent, but from the pulpit, we've been hearing again about uh, the persecution of the saints, right? And if you read the scriptures, uh, especially the New Testament, you know, the church is a suffering church. The church is a, a church under persecution. The church is under attack from the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? And, and so I'm as I read church history, as I read the Bible, and I hear things again, I'm reminded over and over again that this is a reality. This is something, again, that you really need to take seriously. Okay, I'm, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wax on this a little bit, if that, if that makes any sense, okay? So Bunyan was going to say here, this is, again, from the quote from, uh, again, Piper will, will tie into this. Uh, when Bunyan was th first thrown into prison, um, he was meditating upon the Word of God, in particular 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks again 
about, um, he, it's interesting, you know, he, in chapter one, he, addressed, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, right? You've all read that, which is a fabulous description, right? Because then he's going to go on, Paul's going to go on talking about God comforting the, him and the other, those are in his group uh, who are in affliction. And these are serious, serious, serious afflictions. You know, if you read Paul's life, his missionary journeys and so on, um, it seems like wherever he goes, you know, he's being stoned, he's thrown in prison, he's being attacked. I mean, it's just, you name it, right? He's going through quite a few different types of afflictions. And then if you go all the way down to verse 8, Paul says, But we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Verse 9, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. All right. And, and again, I'll be honest with you is I, when I read verses like this, and I think about these things. Um, I wrestle with this. I struggle with this because quite honestly, this is not my experience. Right. But I look at what's going on in the world today, for example, where the church is being persecuted. Like if you follow Voice of the Martyrs, uh, different organizations and things like that, Christians in Nigeria, in Muslim countries, in communist countries, all over the world, this is their experience. This is what they're going through constantly, right? And so when I study like with Bunyan and you read the Pilgrim's Progress and you see the situations again and you hear what's going on uh, from the pulpit and things like this, um, I'm asking God to help me to understand what it means to suffer for the sake of the gospel because I have no idea. Now, again, it doesn't mean that there's not inconveniences, there's not, there's not trials, there's not, um, but again, when Jesus talks about being a disciple, that it's costly. You need to count the cost, count the cost. And it's significant. And so when Bunyan's in that prison, he's trying to think through this. He's trying to process this, okay, how am I going to, in faith, respond and he says this, this, this very top of page 8 on your outline. By this scripture, this the, the passage I just read to you, I was made to see that if I would ever suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing in this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. And the second was to live upon God that is invisible. As Paul said in another place, the way is not to faint. The way not to faint is to look at the things which are not, sorry, to not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so again, um, there's a lot here. There's a lot going on here. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to unpack all of that quite honestly. But in the next line there, too, is a very famous quote from Bunyan as well, the next line there, where he says, I will stay in prison till the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. And so, again, there's this resilient faith. There's this, this uh, determination by the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is not just a, this is not a fleshly thing. This is, again, I'm, I'm convinced, again, when Christians are suffering for the sake of the gospel, this is supernatural. Okay, I mean, you can go back to the arenas, going back to, to ancient Rome. Right when uh, if you st- uh, read those accounts, how those Christians died, and it's it's mind-boggling. Literally, they're like they're almost like beckoning the animals, come on, come on. You know, um, they didn't have a martyr complex; they just had this bravery. And when the people in the stands were watching, they're saying, "There's something about these people, the way they die, 
that doesn't make any sense. And so in Bunyan's case here, he will not compromise. Because remember the whole point, he's thrown into prison because he's preaching the gospel. He's not, he doesn't have a license. He's breaking the law. And the local authorities say, look, we're not even going to lock the gate. All you have to do is just say, don't preach, and you can leave anytime you want. And I think for some of us in that situation, that would be very tempting. Right? And so... Uh, Piper's going to go on to say here, and of course Piper's going Piper's to take it one step further, all right? And he says here, regarding Bunyan, John Piper comments, in all my reading of Bunyan, what has gripped me most is his suffering and how he responded to it, what it made of him and what it might make of us. And that's kind of, I like that line there. All of us come to our task with a history and many predispositions. I come to John Bunyan with a growing sense that suffering is a normal and useful and essential element of the Christian life and ministry. And I did italics mine there. Let me read that one more time. I come to John Bunyan with a growing sense that suffering is a normal and useful and essential element in the Christian life and ministry. And that's tough. Because we already know, again, there's, there's suffering. We already know life is hard. We already know there's difficulties and there's problems. And we live in a fallen world. You know, we're, we have, uh, that's, that's obvious. But... This idea, again, is that, um, you know, how do we, when he says that suffering is normal for the sake of the gospel and useful and essential, you know, we, we wrestle with that. And, and, re, and this is just me, again, thinking about this, is because the type of America I grew up in, you know, I wanted a Christianity that was cultural. I wanted a Christianity that was safe. I wanted a Christianity that I could clock, check in with God on Sundays and Wednesday nights, maybe, if I was really radical, uh, or go to church at night. You know, that was like, whew, I am dedicated, you know. Um, but the truth, man, I wanted my cake and eat it too. Okay, I wanted my cake and eat it too. If that makes any sense. If you, you, you don't even know what that even means anymore. I, I use these slang things with kids, and they go like, what? what's this cake thing? And, you know, it's like, um, you know, okay. I wanted it both ways, right? I want Jesus. I want heaven. But I also want my comfortable life. But what if I can't have my comfortable life? Do I still want Jesus? Right? And so that's where I'm going with this is that, and when I read scripture over and over again, it reminds me again that the Christian life again, um, that God's blessed us with all these freedoms. God's blessed us with these comforts and so on. But there's a line in there um, um, in Piper again, this, this next line, um, follow with me. It says, it not only weans us off the world and teaches us to live on God, as 2 Corinthians 1.9 says, but also makes ministers more able to strengthen the church and make missionaries more able to reach the nations with the gospel of the grace of God. And I like the line there. It says, it not only weans us off the world. Okay, the Puritans will really beg about, you know, again, here's a word, weaning. You know, when someone's, a child is weaned, means what? <coughs> We don't use that word too much, I guess, these days. Remove from, right? Okay. And yeah, and so there's this idea that we have to be weaned off the world, the flesh, that the world system, the things again that 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 um, that tempt us to compromise, right? And so again, if the government says. You know, I'm going to take away this. I'm going to take away this freedom. I'm going to make your life difficult. There's a cost involved here. You know, this idea is that my impression of myself, again, is I'm far too dependent upon the world. I'm far too much in love with the world. I'm far too much attracted to the things of this world. 
And so Bunyan, again, is basically saying, I've got to give this all up. If God says, I'm going to die in this prison, if God says, I'm going to be hanged, like a lot of ministers were hanged because they would not compromise, I've got to be willing to do that. Right? And so this, in, in our day and age, this is like a really radical type of Christianity, all right, that I can't be bought. I've already been bought, all right? That, again, if Jesus says, go, I mean, I, I was just thinking when Jesus talks about, in all three Gospels, they, they have the passage where Jesus says, in order to be a disciple, if anyone wishes to come to me or after me, he must deny himself. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, all right? And so that word deny is poison because we are a culture. We do not want to deny ourselves. We want to indulge ourselves, right? We want our cake and too, eat it too, right? When Jesus says, pick up the cross, you know, what does that mean? And it might mean literally martyrdom. It might mean, you know, discomfort. It might be uh, some kind of, uh, of, of sacrifice that God's calling you to in order to remain faithful to him. And that was, that's what's happened with Bunyan. But that's not unique to Bunyan. That's throughout church history, right? But we have this soft Christianity. I'm just, and this is just me again, but I think I'm pretty accurate, okay? Where again, um, we, don't, we have not count the costs yet, yet. But when, what, when that time comes, you know, will we be ready? Will we be prepared? Are we, you know, is the Lord going to strengthen us to say, you know what, um, I will follow you no matter what? Um, one of the songs, one of my the songs I like, I love, the, the old Isaac Watts, Isaac Watts, you know, he's buried in that <coughs> cemetery, right? When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, you guys know that song, right? Okay, um, real quickly, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Now this next, the last stanza, were the whole realm of nature mine, they were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And I don't know how many times I've sung that song, all right? And I get to that very last line, <laughs> and I'll be honest with you, it's like, can you do that? Okay, that's a teacher thing. Um, but it's just like, you know, Mighty Fortress is Our God. We love that song, right? Especially if you're reformed, right? You know, let goods and kindreds go. Kindred, kindred go. My mortal life also. This body they may kill. God's truth abided still. His kingdom is forever. I think it's all, is that right? Okay. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Really? <laughs> so, all I'm just saying is Bunyan is in, in that um, that type of situation, but that's not unique. And it's gone throughout church history, and the Bible talks about it all the time. And the and reason I'm saying this is because we hear it from the pulpit all the time, it seems like. And that's good because it's in the Bible. It's, it's again, this idea, as Christians, we're on this journey, and um, what is, what's, going, what's in store for us? What is it going to cost us? What are we going to go through? Now, again, I want to reemphasize again, over and over again, Jesus is worth the cost. Jesus is worth the cost. 
If you're truly born again and saved, you know again that Paul talks about that the sufferings, whatever we go through in this life, is nothing compared to what God has for us in heaven. Nothing. Zero. Not. There's no comparison whatsoever for what God has for us in heaven. And that's why Paul, when you read Paul, it's like Paul is so, like he talks about, when he says, I die daily. It's like, wow. You know, that I'm ready. And again, I think in our culture, going back to Bunyan and so on, is that it, there's, there's a good lessons here for us, right? Uh, any thoughts on this, on my rambling here? To die hard to live. Mm-hmm. Right. It is. A lot of us would be willing to do that, but we don't show it in our practical life. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the next little line here, uh, or point B, there's a bunch of difficult circumstances are another historical example of how God accomplishes his good purposes through adversity and trials. And you're all familiar with Romans 8, 28, right? And I had this conversation just yesterday with a person, a long conversation about this, because um, we do wrestle with this. We do struggle with this. Is how, you know, uh, you know, when I'm going through hardships and difficulties and trials and pain and suffering again, how can a good God allow this? What good can come out of this? How can God redeem this? And you already know again, in fact, Romans 8.28, for God works all things together for good. All things, the good and the bad and the ugly. All things together for good. God's version of good, not our version of good. That's the problem, partly, right? And so uh, the, this idea again is that, and so in Bunyan's case here, um, everything that Bunyan goes through is what God's using to mold and shape him as a pastor, as a teacher, as um, a writer. Um, writing the Pilgrim's Progress, remember, he's in prison while he's writing the Pilgrim's Progress, right? And so it's amazing, again, how God uses all of this pain and all the suffering and so on and so forth in our lives for our good, for our good. Because I never want to get the impression, yes, we suffer for no reason, that, like uh, our pain is pointless. There's always a reason why. Now, God doesn't always tell us why, but there's always a reason why. He is good, he is sovereign, and we can trust him. And you see these in these verses all over the place. And then the next point here, as a new believer, Bunyan struggled considerably with doubts and guilt, guilt feelings that delayed his assurance of God's forgiveness and salvation. Since his experience seems to be reflected uh, to, in, to some extent in the Pilgrim's Progress, should it be seen as descriptive or prescriptive? Okay. Um, but when you read the Pilgr- uh, Grace Abounding to Chief of All Sinners, it's a whooping. All right? Because it seems like Bunyan takes him a long, long, long time to work through a lot of issues. Okay, um, and we don't like that again because we like this instant kind of sanctification. We like this. You know, I believe in Jesus. God saves me. He loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And I'm on my way. You know, and um, all these problems and difficulties and so on that I have um, are, are easy to to resolve. Liars. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Because those Christian life is hard, it is difficult, and again, there's there's things that we, um, you know, the thoughts that we have and the and the questions that we have are real questions, and they're deep questions and are hard questions a lot of times, and we struggle with certain things. I mean, the the last point I just made there, the person I was talking to is massively struggling with the, her experience, with her feelings. And I was, we're talking about theology. We're talking about God. We're talking about these things and trying to, to, to bring uh, you know, God's uh, perspective on these issues. 
And so Bunyan in particular, uh, when you read him, well, let's, well, let's read him and see what he says here. Uh, these blasphemous, this is Bunyan speaking, this is actually taken from uh, Grace Abounding. <coughs> these blasphemous thoughts, I know we never, we never think blasphemous thoughts, were as, as such as stirred up questions in me against the very being of God and of his only beloved son. And these are the questions he had. So, uh, as whether there were in truth, uh, but as whether there were in truth a God or Christ. So Bunyan's thinking, is there even a God or, or even Jesus? Or whether the scriptures were not rather a fable or a cunning story than the holy and pure word of God. The tempter would also assault, assault me much with this, quote, uh, can, how can you tell me that the Turks had as good scriptures to prove their, their Muhammad the Savior as we have to prove that Jesus is? And could I think that so many ten, ten thousands in so many countries and kingdoms should be without the knowledge of the right way to heaven if there were indeed a heaven, and that we only who live in a corner of the world should alone be blessed therewith. Everyone who think his own religious rightest, both Jews and Moors and pagans, and how if all of our faith in Christ and scriptures should be but think so too. Okay, and so again, uh, it's interesting when I read those type of questions, those are questions I've heard before. Number one, because I've, I've, I've wondered similar questions in my life. I'm old, so I've had a longer time to think about those questions, okay? But I hear these from young people, for example. How do you know the Bible's true? What about the, the, the person in the jungle somewhere who has not heard the gospel in some way? Well, what about them? All right, and the list goes on and on and on, right? Okay? In this case here, though, there's spiritual warfare going on here, I would argue, that Bunyan's struggling. He's thinking these things. He mentions the word the, the tempter. And he has the next quote on page 9 here. And, and this is probably a well-known quote from Grace Abounding. And now my heart was at times exceedingly hard. If I would have given a thousand pounds for a tear, I could not shed one. No, uh, sometimes a scarce desire to shed one. I was, I was in the storm or temp. I only was in the storm or tempest. This much sunk me. I thought my condition was alone. And that's another thing, too, is that Bunyan is, you know, he's deep in the slough or slaw or bog of despond, all right? We'll get to that, you know, the swamp or whatever you want, you know, it's quicksand of despond, okay? Um, and the point being is a lot of people are, a lot of Christians are, all right? And, some, and sometimes it's just for a brief so it's a period of time, and sometimes it was a long period of time, just like with Bunyan, all right? And so the point is, is that, that Bunyan's going to take his, his experiences and incorporate it in the story. And the question a lot of times is going to be is that, is that normative? Is that normative? Now, we got, I'm going to respond to this because actually Spurgeon's going to respond to this because I always got to go back to Spurgeon here, okay? So you have two sermons from, from Spurgeon who, who references this, uh, one from 1880, the other from 1885, which is a long time ago. And, Spur, and remember, Spurgeon is a huge Bunyan fan if I can use that word, okay? He's a, he loves Bunyan. He loves Pilgrim's Pro, okay? So he says, John Bunyan gives a long story in Grace Abounding, and I am thankful that he does, but he never meant that we were to imitate him in his unbelief and harsh thoughts of God. Those hideous doubts and horrible fears were not the work of the Spirit of God. They were the work of John Bunyan's vivid imagination and the devil together. They had nothing to do with the pardon of his sin except that they hindered him from finding it month after month. 
And I love this. Of course, here's, Spun, here's Spurgeon, you know, the pastor and the evangelist going here. Uh, your business, you poor guilty sinner, is to believe that mercy is dealt out by God to sinners, not according to their despair and remorse, but according to the riches of his grace. Where has God commanded us to despair? Does he not command us to believe? Where has he ever commanded remorse? Does he not bid us hope in his mercy? We are to come to Jesus just as we are and trust him, and we shall be, and we shall be, and I think it's, we shall be forgiven all trespasses in a moment by our loving, waiting Father. Okay, so here's Spurgeon kind of setting this record straight, how he interpreted what Bunyan went through. And then the next line here from Spurgeon says, Therefore, do not judge yourself by any man's biography. Really, really, really super important, right, Jeff? And that's sort of the, a lot of the Puritans, too, yeah. were like that. I mean, he's getting that right out of the Puritanism that, that helped form his, his way of thinking. Yeah. I, I read, I'm reading Owen right now, Temptation and Sin, and there's a lot of that in there, too. Yeah. Of just got to despair over your sin and just beat but, you down. Right. It's, Spurgeon's we, absolutely right. Yeah. And there's extremes. I mean, because you have, like, again, this idea of this... Um, the, the significant remorse, you know, this, this feelings of, of, of abhor, the word abhor, you see the word abhor a lot, you know, to hate thyself, hate thy sin, um, you know, uh, in light of God's holiness, see, you know, they talk about worm theology, it's like really, really over here, but then you get us over here where it's all about we're pretty good people, just cling to, you know, we're, we don't really, we talk about repentance, there's no really, no, um, uh, shame. There's really no brokenness. There's really no aware spiritual awareness again of how I've offended the Holy Spirit, how I've sinned against an Almighty God, a Holy God, and so we've gone to two extremes. You know, over here you're deep in the the, the bog. Over here is just basically God is my good buddy in the sky, and uh, you know he's he should be thankful that I'm on his side. Okay, um, I'm sorry, I'm just exaggerating, but it's, you get the idea. Um, and then he goes on, to, and then goes on. Uh, Spurgeon would go on to say. Do not condemn yourself if, after reading John Bunyan's Grace Abounding, if you say, I never went into those dark places, be glad you never did. Right? And so, I think uh, Spurgeon's dead on on that. Now, there's, now, Bunyan gets a chance to, to re respond here. Suddenly, this is Bunyan, this sentence rushed in upon me. The blood of Christ remits all guilt. At this, I made a stand in my spirit. I love that line. I made a stand in my spirit. Now, this word took hold upon me. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. All right, we talk about preaching the gospel to yourself. 1 John, that first chapter is, is fantastic, right? And then it goes on to say, Now I begin to conceive peace in my soul, and me think I saw as if the tempter did leer and steal, steal away from me as being ashamed of what he had done. All right? And then he goes on to say, uh, Bunyan, is, and this is connected to the second line here, Bunyan's an example of how the doctrine of, just, of justification by faith alone is the power of the gospel to free us from the condemnation of sin. Because remember, that's what Bunyan's dealing with, is this condemnation, this shame, this overwhelming uh, just, uh, you know, feelings, again, that uh, you know, God hates me, God's not on my side, God's not going to forgive me, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, the gospel is ministering to him in this way. So this next one is pretty well known. As one day, I was, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes upon my conscience, interesting line there, fearing least that yet all was not right. Suddenly, this sentence fell upon my soul, thy righteousness is in heaven. And me think, withal, 
I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say as my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, he wants my righteousness, for that was just before him. I saw also moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my, my righteousness worse. My righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, and that's one reason how I prayed the way I prayed at the beginning, because again, we talk about preaching the gospel to yourself. And, you know, why does God love me? Why am I secure in my salvation? Why, again, do I have all these blessings of salvation today? Is because God did it through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And you understand, again, the work of Christ, his active obedience, his passive obedience. And again, um, the, the, the security that comes from truly understanding of how God saves sinners. And so that's, again, where Bunyan is going to come to that conclusion. All righty, uh, let's flip it on over. We're, we're moving along at a good pace here. Page 10, uh, point three. He is an example of a person who truly understood the spiritual value of the word of God. All right? And one of the things uh, that I'm going to say, and I'm not the only person saying it, is that you know, we are um, a, a, um, a society that doesn't read. <laughs> okay? we're, not, we're a society that doesn't read, and we're a society that doesn't know how to read. And what do I mean by that? What do you think I mean by that? How many books do you think people actually read a year? <clears throat> How's that? Not many. No. Not many. That's right. Okay. Uh, and of course, if you didn't worry, this is a book. Bubbles a book. I'm no surprise. Okay. Yeah, it's a book. All right. And the point, of course, is that the Jews were referred to as the people of the book, right? That the Bible, you know, for for up until recently at least in the West, um, the Bible was read and read and read and studied and, and, um, and you would have it in the culture, for example. You have in courthouses, the Ten Commandments, in schools, the Ten Commandments, and, and references to, to Scripture all around you. Go to D.C., okay? You see all the monuments. There's Scripture all around on these monuments, all right? And the point, of course, is that the Puritans and Bunyan and so on, um, they love the Word of God. They love the Word of God. And now it's almost when I have to talk to young people, for example, I have to remind them, you are to love the word of God. If you love God, you're to love his word. I delight to do thy will, O God, for thy law is upon my heart. Right? And so Bunyan, um, all of his circumstances drove him into the word, drove him into the word. When we talk about one of the benefits of suffering and difficulties and problems, it drives you to prayer and it drives you to, to, into the word of God. It should, Right? And so Bunyan, that's him. And so he has, here's a quote here from, uh, again, from a, a Grace Abounding. Now, me think, me thought, I always love this old English. I began to look into the Bible with new eyes and read as I never did before. And especially the, the epistles of the apostle Paul were sweet and pleasant to me. And indeed, I was never out of the Bible, either by reading and meditation, still crying out to God that I might, that I, that I might know the truth and the way to heaven and glory. I mean, there is just that passion there. There's that hunger there. There's that, that fervor, okay, to, I want to know Jesus, right? Um, and we live in times where you, that passion seems not to quite be there. I remember in the 70s during the Jesus movement, some of you were around that time period, right? 70s, long time ago, yeah. Um, the, uh, <laughs> and um, that was, one of the, the, the characteristics of that was, were Bible studies, 
I mean, young people were doing Bible studies all over the place, right? You know, Bible studies, like studying the Bible. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic a little bit, but the point is, honestly, um, I asked a group, and I said, okay, about studying the Bible, okay? And I had to define and explain to them what a Bible study was. <laughs> I had to explain what a Bible study was, right? Because they had never been in a Bible study. And these are people, young professing Christians, right? And so it used to be, again, common, again, is that there were churches and Sunday schools where, again, they would actually study. And we do this here. I mean, I don't, I'm not denying that, okay? So please don't misunderstand me. But overall, the church overall, the evangelical church overall, again, there's a biblical illiteracy that's taking place, all right? And it explains a lot. It explains a lot. So... Uh, you have here a quote from, um, uh, from uh, Desiring God Ministries, Piper's ministry, uh, uh, ministry there, and, and they make reference to this. It says, one of the greatest scenes in the Pilgrim's Progress is when a Christian recalls in the, in the dungeon of Doubting Castle that he has a key to the door. And, and uh, Justin mentioned this from the pulpit, by the way, too. Um, it goes on to say it's very significant not only what the key is, but where it is. And, the, and this is a quote from Pilgrim's Progress. What a fool I have been to lie here like this in this stinking dungeon. I like that, stinking dungeon, when I could have just as walked out, uh, well walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called Promise that will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that was his companion with him there, that's good news. My good brother, do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key from his chest and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease so that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out. And I love that scene here because I can only imagine they're in Downing Castle. They're in the stink. And you, when we get to the story, it's, um, it's, it's great. Okay. Um, but when they put the key in, literally, it's like a magic key. I mean, it's literally like put the key in. It's like, boom, the door opens up. It's like. And let's go, right? So it's not like they have to work it, you know, like your car, it's not like you have to work the key a little bit. No, 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 no. Okay, this key is a great key. It works, okay? And then it goes on, uh, the, the, the commentator will say this. Three times Bunyan says that the key was in Christian's chest pocket or simply his chest. I take this to mean that Christian had hidden it in his heart by memorization and it was now accessible in prison for precisely this reason. This is how the promises sustained and strengthened Bunyan. He was filled with scripture. Everything he wrote was saturated with the Bible. He poured over the English Bible, which he had most of the time. This is why he can say uh, of his writings, I have, not, uh, I have not for these things uh, fished in other men's waters. My Bible and concordance are my only library in my, uh, only library in my writings. Bunyan, re Bunyan referenced the word of God and trembled at the prospect of dishonoring it. And that's an interesting line there too. Let me die with the Philistines, of course taken from Samson there, uh, Judges 16 rather than die, deal corruptly with the blessed word of God. This in the end is why Bunyan is still with us today. Rather than disappearing into the midst of history, he is with us and ministering to us because he reverenced the word of God and was so permeated by it that his blood was bibbling and that the essence of the Bible flows from him. And again, I love that again because I, I would like to think again that I love God and I love his word and I memorize his word that it's hidden in my heart. They may not sin against him. I want my thoughts to be transformed by the word of God, Romans 1, chapter, you know, chapter 12, excuse me, Romans 1 and 2, right? Um, and over and over again, because again, I want to be like Christ. I want to be conformed into the image of Christ. And this is what the spirit of God uses is the word of God. 
And if I don't know the Word of God, if I'm studying the Word of God, if I'm not in the Word of God, under the authority of the Word of God, no change is going to happen. Right? And so, again, this is one reason why we study Pilgrim's Progress, because it's saturated with the Word of God and, um, and makes it, of course, uh, beneficial to us in our salvation. Okay, uh, finally, uh, you, on the very last page, you have here a synopsis of the story. Now, again, most of you already are familiar with the story of the Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to read it real quick, and we'll be done for today. And, um, and this is spoilers. So those of you like you know the word spoilers, okay? Okay, this is a spoiler. So if you don't want to hear what happens, leave now. No, don't leave. Okay, okay, so... In the first scene, a man in rags, opposed, the, opposed, and this is taken from another source, by a burden on his back, is reading a book. He is distressed and agitated because he knows the city of destruction in which he lives faces certain damnation. While he maunders, uh, something like that, in the field, evangelist approaches and advises him to flee, pointing him in the direction of the wicket gate, we'll talk about that, and a distant light, shining light. Christian, for such is the hero's name, takes off in that direction, running hard with his fingers in his ears to block out the entreaties of his wife and family who he leaves behind. Two of his townsmen, obstinate and pliable, try to follow and knock some sense into him. Pliable, however, is won over by Christian's arguments and decides to join him. Soon they stumble into the slough of despond. Disgusted, pliable scrambles out and heads for home, leaving Christian to struggle on alone. After being assisted from the slough by help, Christian meets one of the many false pilgrims who will try to mislead him. One, this one is Mr. Worldly Wiseman, who advises him to leave the road and head toward the town of Morality, where legality can ease him of his burden. Christian follows his advice. However, the mountain that he has to pass has a dangerous overlooking looking overhang and emits flashes of fire. Christian stands undecided until Evangelist comes striding along and berates him for leaving the prescribed route. Christian uh, recommences his journey and arrives at the wicked gate where he is given entry and directed to follow the narrow, path, narrow way. Shortly afterwards, Christian arrives at the interpreter's house, the first of several places of instruction. Here he is shown various uh, excellent things that teach him to keep chief points of doctrine and so on. The next leg of his journey takes him to the cross where the burden of sin falls from his shoulders. Uh, three shiny ones appear to him and fit him with new clothes, place the mark of election on his forehead, and give him a roll that he is to hand in at the gates of the celestial city. Thus fortified, he sets off and after various interludes, struggles up the hill difficulty, only to fall asleep at an arbor along the way and lose his precious roll, which he has to backtrack to ret retrieve. He then comes to a second place of instruction, the palace beautiful, where he's outfitted with a sword and armor. These, these he soon needs as he's confronted in the Valley of Humiliation by the dragon Apollyon, whom after a taxing battle he puts to flight. After stumbling through the horrors of the Valley of Shadow of Death, he meets up with a companion, Faithful. They encounter further false uh, pilgrims and then find themselves in Vanity Fair or Las Vegas, a town of overheated commerce, greed, or political corruption. Here they are soon at odds with the venial townsfolk uh, and are charged with sedition. Faithful is burned at the stake. Christian is imprisoned but managed to escape and shortly afterward encounters a second uh, companion, Hopeful. Their journey goes well until Christian takes a wrong turn and they end up on the property of giant despair who imprisons them in a dungeon that they eventually escape when Christian belatedly recalls that he carries the key to the prison cell. Their next port of call is the Delectable Mountains where they are again instructed and given directions to their destination. They encounter additional smooth-tongued travelers whom they put, to, to put right on matters of doctrine and after going astray again, they pass through the enchanted ground and finally arrive at Beulah Land, a heaven's waiting room where one is hope, uh, summoned to heaven by crossing the river of death. With some difficulty, Christian and Hopeful 
uh, get across the waters, and after handing their certificates, enter the gates of heaven. Ignorance, uh, one of their overconfident part-time part travel commandants arrives afterward and basically drops into hell. I, I just added that little part there. Yeah, so um, not a good guy for them. All right, so I'm stopping here uh, again. So we are all, we're all done with the introduction, and we will uh, promptly, unless Jesus takes me, we will start next week on Chapter 1, all right? So thanks. Thanks.